Welcome to the podcast of First Baptist Church in Wilson, Oklahoma, preaching the weekly teaching and preaching ministry of the church. We are grateful that you are choosing to join us today. Our prayer is that you are blessed by today's study of God's Word, and your heart will be receptive to what God desires to teach you today. For more information about FBC Wilson, please visit our website at fbcwilson.org. We hope you enjoyed today's service, and we look forward to studying God's Word with you today. on the Bible reading plans my intention is on Wednesday nights before we do prayer request to have a time if there is something that you have read this last week that you have a question about um, that we might help each other try to think through the answers or think through how to um, process it and understand it or if there's something that just stuck out to you that was exciting something that you saw something that you hadn't seen before something that even that uh, through just God's word the spirit just spoke to your heart and you would like to share it with someone else my intention is is on Wednesday nights um, we've only had three days here um, so hopefully next Wednesday night um, just have a time where at the very beginning questions comments criticism insights thoughts Whatever it is, just have a time so that we can kind of think, hey, uh, what are we doing? And uh, reading through the Word together. So just to let you know um, what's going to be looking at next Wednesday. Next Wednesday, we will be looking at the character of Ruth. So tonight, we are going to be looking at the character of Esther. So if you have a Bible and you want to make your way to the book of Esther, um, if you are a little bit rusty, of course, there's the table of contents at the front of your Bible that's there for you to use. If you would like to, to find Esther, if you get to the Psalms and you take a left and you go back, um, Esther is before the Psalms. So you'll see Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, and then Psalms or the Psalms. So Esther, Esther chapter 1 is where we're going to be uh, pretty much starting at and looking at the life of Esther tonight. Every time we've gone through these, and we've been doing this on Wednesday night for a while, we've been looking at different character studies. We've been looking at both men and women. We've been looking at both good and bad examples we have from Scripture. We've just been looking at them and asking primarily three questions. We ask, what's the first question? Who are they? Right? So biographical, factual information, just uh, just, just the facts, please. And then the second question is, is why do we know them? So why are they included in Scripture? Why is, they, why is it somebody that you and I would spend a Wednesday night in January talking about, reading about, thinking about? And the last question is, is what lessons do they teach us as far as what is there that we can glean to say, hey, this gives us a better understanding of how we can better live our lives because of how God interacts with them, how they interact with God. Etc. So, Esther chapter 1. So let's start off with the first question. This is always audience participation time. First question, who was she? What do we know about her? Now, I'm not asking about what she did. That will come into as far as why do we know about her. Let's get just some facts. Her birthday, when she lived, an address, a high school GPA, mother, father, aunt, twice removed on the sister's side. What do we know about her that would be on a factual resume? Her dad was Abihel. Her dad was Abihel. And where do you get that from, Mr. Hurley? Esther 2.15. Esther 2.15. All right, good. All right, so it says in Esther 2.15 that when the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihel, the uncle of Mordecai. Okay, so we have her dad's name. Her dad's name is Abihel. What else do we know about her? 
She was a Jew. She was raised by Mordecai. Okay. What do we know about Mordecai? Who's her cousin? A cousin? First cousin? Second cousin? Third cousin? Yeah. What? Older cousin. Where do you get that from? That was chapter you said chapter 2, verse 7, right? Okay, I, th- I, thought, I thought that's what you're getting ready to say. Okay, so, so in chapter 2 and verse 7, it tells us that uh, he, this is talking about Mordecai, it introduces Mordecai there in verse 5 of chapter 2, but then it says in verse 7, he was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle. So you think the daughter of his uncle, why wouldn't you just say his first cousin? Well, I don't know. I didn't write it. You didn't write it. They chose to write it, the daughter of his uncle, that would make it first cousin. So Mordecai, so you brought up that she was being raised by Mordecai. What do we know about Mordecai? Do we know anything about Mordecai? He was a Benjamite. Where, we, where do you get that from, Mr. Pete? Verse, verse 5, right? Okay, so... Follow me here. It says in verse 5, Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shimei, Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjamite. Does that language sound familiar? Huh? Sounds very Jewish. Sounds very Jewish. Sounds very Jewish. Does that, does that sound familiar? The son of Kish, a Benjamite? So, so. So. Where's that from? Do you remember? That's what? Remember that? You said First Samuel nine. That's what you said. So you said Harold. You said First Samuel nine, didn't you? That's what I said. Yeah, that's what you said. All right. Well, would you turn there for us, Mr. Harold? Because that's that's not Acts. You'll have to go far away from Acts. That's so. When you go to First Samuel chapter nine, and would you read for us uh, verse one and verse two? Would you do that for us, Mr. Harold? Yes, sir. Which is verse 1? Let's do verse 1. He says he's got to get there first. Oh, he's got to get there. So okay. were you telling me where it's at? Okay. Well, I'm just going to read it for the sake of time. Because I always want to start on time. Because you always get me talking. Okay, so 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Bakrah, son of Aphanah, a Benjamite, a man of wealth. And this is the man whose father, or whose son was Saul. So 1 Samuel chapter 9, if you remember your history, this is where the people of Israel say, we want a king. And Samuel's like, well, yeah, but God gave you a judge. And they said, no, we want a king. And Samuel's like, uh, God, um, they want a king, but they're not happy with the judge. And God said, give him a king. And so then he then tells Samuel, go find this guy named Saul, the son of Kish, a Benjamite, and anoint him as the first king of the Jewish people. So 1 Samuel chapter 9 says that, talking about Saul, Saul's dad was Kish, a Benjamite. Well, you get to Esther, and Esther chapter 2 and verse 5 says that in his lineage was the son of Kish, a Benjamite. So my question question is, are these the same people? Yeah. Are they a tribe of people? Are, is it the same person? Right. So you go to 1 Samuel 9, it talks about Kish and Benjamin, and you're hearing, you're hearing Esther 2 and verse 5, and it talks about Kish and Benjamin. Do you think they're the same people? Kalina, yes or no? No. Yes. Karina, yes or no? Yes. Shelby, yes or no? 
Shelby says no. Good job, Shelby. Good, good job. All right. So, so here's here's where this whole thing, this whole thing called Bible reading, is some of the most fascinating, some of the most interesting, some of the most frustrating, discouraging things that you can sometimes do. Because if you're reading through here and in just a common, simple reading, you're in First Samuel nine, and then you get an Esther two, and you're like, huh? They must be related. The problem is seven hundred years. Okay, so if you think back and you think about in a timeline where they existed, Saul reigned around 1050 to what I write down, 1050 to 1010 BC. Alright? So he reigned and he was the first king of Israel. Well, when you come into Esther, you have already gone through the divided kingdom. Alright? So you had Saul, then you have David, and then you had Solomon, and then you had Rehoboam and Jeroboam, and then you had all the kings that followed with Israel and Judah. Alright? Alright? And then you have the Assyrians come here. They take the ten northern tribes. They take them off. They, uh, they kind of wander off into history. Then you have Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians come in, capture the two southern tribes. And now they are now in exile. And where the book of Esther comes in is during this same period of exile. So when you read that, you may think to yourself, well, they're connected. they got to be connected. The problem is, is they can't be connected because it's 700 years. So you say, well, then Spence, how do you account for the names? People have names that are used over and over and over again. So, Mr. Jim Shaw back there, he is not the only person that has ever been named Jim. <laughs> probably won't ever. He's probably not the last person that ever be named Jim. So sometimes if you come into history and you think to yourself, it says Jim of Chandler, and you're like, oh, well, this has to be the same person, until you start to think there may be more than one Jim of Chandler. Alright? So that's the only reason I bring it up. Now, you get you may get around some surly people that'll look at this and say, oh, see, there's a contradiction, and now that we've found a contradiction, and now we can just eliminate the reliability and the truthfulness of God's word, and you can say, hold on there, cowboy, you don't know what you're talking about. It's not a contradiction, it's just you don't have as far as all the names and facts and figures. Sometimes you've got to go back and look at it and there is a separation there between time. So when you think about Mordecai and you read this, just think, hey, you know, there is a connection there. There is a, uh, a similarity there. But uh, I would just encourage you not to say it's the same people and somehow they're a couple of generations removed. Savvy? All right. She left. Why? She, she, she was I was. She was on the brought up Mordecai. Okay. All right. So... Uh, got the father of Esther. We got the first cousin of Esther, the older first cousin who is raising Esther, Mordecai. What else do we know about her? She's a queen. Okay, she's going to be a queen at some point, yes. She was taken by King Xerxes. Okay. Do we know kind of a timeline when she was alive? Uh, what? During the exile. During the exile, okay. 538. 538? Okay, where do you get that from? The beginning of my chapter. The beginning of chapter. Okay. Okay. 
So if you go back to Esther chapter 2 and verse 1, it gives us a bit of an address as far as chronologically. And it says in chapter 2 and verse 1, Now in the days of Hazarus. Now you say, well, that's not how you pronounce it. Okay, well, you pronounce it the way you want to pronounce it, and I'll pronounce it. The right way I want to pronounce it, we'll both be right. So I'm just going to say for simplicity, Hazarus. Okay, so now in the days of Hazarus, who reigned um, from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces. So what the writer there of Esther is doing is kind of dating this, putting a time stamp on it, so we know where that's at. Some of you may have a study Bible, some of you may have a reference Bible that may give you some dates for when he reigned. Does anybody have that? 481 to 479 BC. Okay, does anybody have? I just had a question. What were you reading just now? What version? What verse? Oh, chapter 1. Chapter 1 and verse 1. Okay? So you said, Mr. Mark, you said 581? 481 to 479. 481 to 479. Does that square with what you all have? Ish. Ish. Okay. So that's really close. So the, 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 the reference that I was looking at, it said 486 to 464. But that's, we're ballpark. So okay. Six is when they're saying that he was crown king. Began to reign and it depends on who you're reading because this is one of those things, Anthony, that we can look at it and say, well, that is what the commentary said or that is what the biblical writer said or the scholar read, but I don't have a chapter and verse that says this is when it was. So I always want to be careful. I want to leave a lot of room for difference of opinions and sometimes different way of writing. Yes, ma'am? Is this, um, then if they're in exile, are you putting his reign as before King Cyrus? So... I thought it was after, but I might have been mistaken. So, thank you. So, we started Monday reading where? Genesis. Ezra. Genesis and Ezra. Genesis and Ezra. Well, I got one person reading with me. One person in the whole room reading. Boy, you guys just are so encouraging my heart. You guys just make me just skip going home. All right. So, if you get this Bible reading plan, you will know that we started in Genesis 1... Matthew 1, Acts chapter 1, and... See, thank you. I I was hoping. Okay, so hold your finger. Hold your finger there in Esther and go to the left. So if you go to the left, you go to Nehemiah, and then you get over to Ezra. Now what I want to try to do is, for for the two or three of you, that voice that you were reading along with me in these last three days, I want to connect this because I want you to see that sometimes what you read has um, applicability or it, it is something that you can connect. Now I understand where this fits in through the course of history. So if you go back to Ezra chapter 1, which is what we should have, which what we all hopefully read, I shouldn't say should have read because that sounds a little bad. What we hopefully have read, Ezra chapter 1, verse 1, it says in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia. So we try to picture where Esther is at in the whole timeline of the history of the Bible. So we know the story of Scripture is Genesis God created to Revelation that God restores. Okay? So all the way from Genesis 1 all the way to Revelation there is a great arch of a story. Alright? My personal opinion, we're somewhere in the late 6,000s coming from from creation to where we're at currently when I date the earth. Um, that's Personal opinion, you can be wrong if you have a different idea, that's okay. However, so that's that's where I'm at. So you think, well, where does this fit? Because Esther is a real story about a real point in time, and we try to picture it and place it. How do we do that? Well, 
So, talk to, Mark said, the Azarus, Azarus, he reigned 480s to about the 460s. Okay, so where does that fit with Cyrus? Well, you go back to Ezra chapter 1 and verse 1 where we were at Monday in our Bible reading and it talks about Cyrus the king of Persia and how he released the people and what did he tell them to do? He told them to go back and to rebuild the temple, right? So he was the new king of Persia. God stirred it up in his heart. It also says this across the page in 2 Chronicles chapter 36 that God is the one that stirred it up in his heart. He decided to let all these Jews that had been um, left over in the exile said, hey, you all can go back. Ezra chapter 2, um, I think says there were in verse 64, that there was 42,360 Jews that returned with the exile. They returned with Ezra to rebuild the wall. So we start to think to ourselves, okay, so what is so big about Cyrus? Well, Cyrus, and this is where you go to other historical writings, okay, so please don't think I'm chapter and verse in this. You go to other historical writings, and he was, you have the different empires. So you have the Assyrian Empire to the north. You have the Babylonian Empire, which is now what is modern-day Iraq. Then you had the um, rise of the Persian Empire, which is what is nowadays modern Iran. And so you had these different empires throughout seasons of history. So the extra-biblical writing would say that Cyrus was the first ruler of the Persian Empire that came to power. And so where the Assyrians and the Babylonians had taken them to exile, when Cyrus comes upon the scene, he decides to release these exiles. Now, when he is coming up in power, there is a period of time that you still have Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians and you see the rise of Cyrus and the Persians. And so sometimes you just can't think it goes from step to step to step. Sometimes these things are happening simultaneously. So in Ezra chapter 1, you have a certain remnant of the exiles that Lisa is talking about that get to return, but you also have others either in still in Assyria or you even have some still there in Babylon that are still being held in exile. So you see one movement that leaves then with Ezra in Ezra 1 verse 1. So when you think about Esther, Esther is still left there in where? Do we know where she's at? Oh, come on. Susa. She is in Susa, which is the citadel. Susa is the capital city of the newly formed empire of Persia. You look on a map, you would have... Um, I'm going to do this backwards. So if you look on a map and you got the... Um, not the Gulf, not the Arabian... Whatever that big body of water is. Mediterranean. No, Mediterranean's up here. Persian Gulf. Persian, Persian, Persian. Persian. Thank you. So you have the Persian Gulf down here, okay? And then you got little Kuwait right here, and you got Iran right there, and then you got Iraq right up here, okay? So if you were to look on a map, I'm trying to do this backwards, okay? So if you were to look on a map, you would have Babylon, Babylon about right here, and Susa would be down here in what would be more of southern Iran, all right? So if you were thinking about a map. So you have, for a period of time, you have both of these kingdoms run on simultaneously. So Cyrus, according to extra-biblical writing, he ruled from 559 to 549 B.C. You may say, okay, so you mean he came before Ahasuerus. I say yes. And let me show you why I say yes. Because you get to Ezra chapter 1 verse 1, you see the stirring of Cyrus. Then, if you are on track in the Bible reading, tomorrow you'll read in Ezra chapter 4 and verse 4. 
It says, then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build. They're talking about the rebuilding of the temple. And bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And you might start to think to yourself, well, okay, so who's this Darius guy? You might remember maybe somebody that would remind us of Darius. Darius. Huh? Daniel. 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 Okay, so do you remember kind of roughly where we're at in Daniel? Chapter 9, that's what you're thinking. I knew that you were getting ready to say it. Okay, so you think back, okay? So you think when Daniel is in exile, he is in exile there in Babylon, right? And while he's in exile, he's mostly serving the king Nebuchadnezzar, right? All right. But then at some point, you have Belshazzar, which is either the son or the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, all right? And he's the one that's brought all the uh, the holy um, cups and bowls and everything out from the, that were taken from the temple. And remember, they're having this big, drunken party, right? And they're using all all the holy things of God taken from the temple and that's when you have the writing that shows up and it's just a hand he writes up on the wall Belshazzar or Belshazzar he gets a little bit scared right and he calls in Daniel and says Daniel can you read this Daniel says that says you are finished it doesn't really say it like that that's just my paraphrase okay but it has a phrase about pretty much you're done alright Daniel chapter 9 and verse 1 it says that night Darius the Mede which is Darius the Persian showed up kicked the grandson or the son of Nebuchadnezzar out and assumed the throne alright so if I and, and, and we might Differ because this is going back to extra biblical stuff. Because I don't give you, I, I can't have a chapter and verse for the dates. But you have Cyrus, and then you have it says there in Ezra chapter four and verse five until the reign of Darius. So just reading through this, you think, okay, so he is putting Cyrus first, Darius second, and then you look down there in verse six, and it says, and in the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. I think that that guy in Ezra chapter 4 and verse 6 is the same guy in Ezra chapter 1 and verse 1. Now, can you prove that? No. And you can't prove it isn't. So, we'll both just go off the assumption that it's the same name, alright, that's given there. Now, you might read this tomorrow in Ezra chapter 4, and you're like, okay, so I see where Spence is getting this, and that's kind of cool. We talked about this last night. And then you get to Friday and Saturday in Ezra chapter 5 and Ezra chapter 6, and then you think, this guy fooled us. Because you get down there in Ezra Uh, chapter 5 and look at uh, verse 7 it said then they sent him a report in which was written as follows to Darius the king all peace so if you're reading through this you're just like hold up so we had Cyrus and then we had Darius and then we had Azazarus and now it's mentioning this other Darius well who's this guy well this is why I want to leave you room for Opportunities for uh, various opinions. Because if you look back to the extra biblical writing, um, you see Egyptian writings that are still down there in what is modern day Africa um, that are held in museums. You go to Europe and you'll see different um, ancient writings. There is at least three different Dariuses mentioned historically. There is at least three different uh, Hazaruses 
mentioned in Scripture. There's at least three different Artaxerxes listed in Scripture. Now, my personal opinion, if you say, well, Spence, you've got to take a stand, I'm going to say that you had Cyrus, and then you had Darius. I think there was somebody in between Darius and Hazarus, and then after that came Artaxerxes. Darius II is after that, because some of the uh, Mesopotamian writings has Darius II around 423 to 405 B.C., point is, is you get here to Friday, Saturday and you're in Ezra 5 and chapter 6 and you're like, well this same Darius I would recommend my opinion is, it's a different Darius same name, different guy just like Kish that we think about in in Esther chapter 2 and 1 Samuel chapter 9, alright but I think that this Nazareth is the same dude. Now, you have, back there in Esther chapter 1, you have this guy named Ahasuerus, and you think, okay, so what is so significant about him? Well, he is also known as Xerxes. Other writings will call him Xerxes. Is that what you got, Anthony? Does it say his name is Xerxes? Xerxes. Okay. It also says here it could be pronounced Cush. Okay. So Xerxes was another name for him. And some of you, I don't recommend it, but I'm not naive to think that no one in here has done it. The movie 300, it is highlighting the battle of, how do you pronounce that? Thermopylae. Thermopylae. So it's highlighting the battle of Thermopylae, which is in 480 BC. And in that movie, you have the Greeks who are being attacked by the Persian. And the person that is attacking the king is Artaxerxes. I contend that it's the same dude in Esther chapter 1. I think it's the same dude that then you see in 480 because the timeline fits who's trying to conquer the Greeks and that is where you get the movie 300 out of. Alright? So you have Hazarus there in Esther chapter 1 and then later this month if you keep up with the Bible reading you will find yourself in the book of Nehemiah. So if you go from Ezra the next book to the right is Nehemiah. And in Nehemiah chapter 2, it says, chapter 2, verse 1, it says, In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. So what I'm going to put before you is, is that when you're thinking about what we're going to be reading this month in Ezra and Nehemiah, you have Cyrus, and then you see Darius, that's Daniel, and then you see Ahasuerus, and then you see Artaxerxes. And so these things that we're reading are all happening around the same time as Esther. So when we come into the book of Esther, the reason I bring this up, when we come into the book of Esther, this is not just something abstract. This is not just something that happened that has no connection. I mean, this is all connected, all throughout our Old Testament. Now, personally, I think it's really cool. I think how all this stuff can be connected from one place to another, and especially when you're reading in your daily Bible reading, you're like, hey, I see why this is relevant because I see how this connects to this, to this, to this, to this. So when you go back to Ezra, you'll see there were multiple waves. There were waves that came with Ezra at the very beginning. There were waves that came with Ezra the second time. There were waves that came with Nehemiah. There were waves that came with Zechariah, and there were waves that came with Haggai whenever they left the exile to return back to what, what, what is modern day Israel. And that's a long trail. I just think it's neat how things that you can read in the Bible are connected with other things that we might think about or study about. Yes, sir? As I was going to say that one Bible scholar I listened to one time uh, recently said that basically Xerxes was his title or Azuerus was his name. Very possible. Very possible. 
Actually, mine doesn't even mention that name. Oh, it doesn't? No, I can't find it. You probably have the Apocrypha, don't you? The Apocrypha. <laughs> I'm just teasing with you, buddy. All right. Where were we? Okay, who was she? Yeah, so we talked about when she lived. All right, so she lived during the time of Lazarus. I went off on that rabbit trail about who he was, where he connects into Ezra and Nehemiah. All right, we know the father. We know the, the uncle, or the, I'm sorry, the cousin, Mordecai, that is raising her. Do we know anything about a mother? Do we know anything about when she's living as far as the state or the condition of her mother or father? She was orphaned, okay? So we get that there in uh, chapter 2 and verse 7. I'm, I'm back in Esther now. I'm sorry I didn't, I didn't give you the heads up. So I'm back in Esther now. So after chapter 2 verse 7 it says the reason why Mordecai is raising his cousin is because she didn't have a mother or a father. What else do we know about her that would be factual information? She was a virgin. She was a very gorgeous woman. Is that what you said? Yes, she, and it tells us in chapter 2, verse 7, that she was very attractive to look at. A young maiden, an innocent, unmarried, um, unbetrothed, a very attractive woman. But then it says in verse 7 of chapter 2, maybe you can help me with this. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther. Well, which is it? Hadassah is the Hebrew name, and I think Esther was the name that was given to her later, but I haven't read that for yet. Okay. So I agree with you. I agree that that Hadassah was the Hebrew name. Does, do we know where Esther comes from? Mordecai had told her not to tell anyone her genealogy or her, her blood. Like, Mystery Bible says that Esther means star in Persian. Yeah. So most people, Kalina, think that Hadassah was her Hebrew name and Esther was her Persian name. So you'll even see that in the New Testament where you had the Jewish name and the Greek name. All right. And so you see people that had that. You even have that today. Um, sometimes um, I've been in educational settings where we're with a lot of North Korea or not North South Koreans that are, are studying in the, the seminaries. And you say, what's your name? And they say, my name is Jim. And I'm like, no, it's not. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's, it's something, you know, and I don't want to be derogatory, but like, well, that's my English name because they have their Korean name and then they have their English name. So I, most people think that Hadassah was the Hebrew name and Esther was the Persian name. Hadassah is, uh, means myrtle. So if you have been to the Sight and Sound Theater, that's why they use a myrtle tree, the Hadassah tree, to signify that. And yes, Esther means star. They make a, they make a big deal out of it in the Esther play that uh, her name means star and how that plays into her role into the story. Anything else we know about who she was before we think about why do we know her? Yes, ma'am. Well, I just have a question. Yes, ma'am. As a young girl, but how old really was she? It doesn't really say, but in that time period, isn't a young girl like older? I, I do not know. I, I don't know. 13, 14, 18, I, maybe, you think, you think 40? Okay, maybe, maybe. I, I don't know. I don't, I don't know. I, I know what most of, 
The majority of commentators, as far as New Testament writers, when they talk about Mary, um, they would pin her in her teenage, early teenage years. Um, so I don't know if that was still a cultural norm um, several hundred years before that. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I, I know the woman at Branson looked to be about 25. <laughs> now, I don't know. So I, that's, the best, that's the best connection. Do you think? What do you think, Ron? I agree. You think about 25? I mean, I didn't get, get right up close and personal with her, but I saw her at a distance. And I've been to it twice. So I mean, it was, and it was the same girl both times. So I, I just, I'm going to gauge 25. That's what, I, but I don't know, Miss Donna. I, I don't know exactly how old. It just, but it does say that she was a, a young woman. It says there in verse 9, and that young woman pleased him. So um, we don't have a definite age. Okay, so why do we know about her? We only got like... <laughs> 15, 20 minutes to go through the whole story of Esther. Alright, so why do we know? Let's, so, so start at the beginning. Why do we know? So start in chapter 2 and verse 8. Why do we know the name Esther? Why does she stick out to us? Well, she's, yeah, she's the center of this book. But really the only reason we know about her is because Ahasuerus had a queen named Vashti. Got mad at Vashti. Pretty much put her into exile. Got rid of Vashti. Got a little homesick, right? Got a little lovesick. Said, I want, you know, I, I want some snuggles. And then set out to find a new wife. Okay? So then they started a beauty pageant. Alright? Started um, looking for a replacement for Hazazarus. Or to replace Vashti. And so there was then a competition announced. That they would look through all out the kingdom. And take the most attractive women. The most beautiful women. The most pleasing women. Bring them in to the king's court. They would go through a period of time of beautification and then one by one he would sort through them and figure out which one that he wanted, if, if, if there was one and which one he wanted to marry. So, it says in uh, Esther chapter 2 and verse 8, Esther was also taken into custody in, or taken into the king's palace and put in the custody of Haggai who had charge of the women. So, right there we understand that she was taken to the king's palace during the search for a queen. Skip down to verse 17 and it tells us that after being interviewed by the king, she was found to be acceptable and found to be lovely. And it says the king, I'm in chapter 2 verse 17, the king loved Esther more than all the women and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the other virgins so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. So you think, what an awesome story. A woman, a no-name woman, just a little old Jew in a big town, a foreign town. All of her ancestors pretty much were, were she's here because her ancestors were in exile. She doesn't have mom and dad living. She's being raised by her first cousin. And she gets plucked out of obscurity and she is being promoted to being queen of the entire kingdom, the entire ruler. And you think, what an awesome story. So you get to chapter 3. In chapter 3 in verse 1, it says, And after these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. Now, I have a pretty good feeling who all has been to Branson. So, 
Bend to Branson, can't answer. So, who is this? Any ideas? Oh, good, good. See, that's, that's why we're here together. All right, so hold your finger. Hold your finger there in Esther chapter 3. All right, and if you want to, if you don't want to, that's fine. Go back to 1 Samuel chapter 15. All right, so Esther chapter 3, go back to your left to 1 Samuel 15. All right, so in 1 Samuel 15, Saul is now on the throne. Because remember, in 1 Samuel chapter 9 is when Samuel is looking to tap the first king of the people of Israel. He picks Saul. So you get to first king or first Samuel chapter 15. Saul is in charge and in first Samuel if I if I get there I'll, and I will get there. First Samuel chapter 15 and verse 1 it says, Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people of Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child, and if an ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them. Uh, verse 5, And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Um, verse 7, And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. So, you have Agag, the ruler of the Amalekites. God says to Samuel, Tell Saul, go kill, utterly destroy, wipe out the Amalekites. Saul says, 10-4, boss. He goes and he attacks them and he destroys most of them, but he does not destroy all of them. And you can read this in 1 Samuel 15 and verse Samuel chapter 16. This is the reason why God then rejected Saul from being king and instead selected David to be the successor because Saul would not fully obey the voice of God. So the ruler of the Amalekites was a guy by the name of Agag. So you get to Esther chapter 3 and when it says Haman is an Agagite, it is connected that he is a descendant of Agag, the ruler of the Amalekites, which would make Haman an Amalekite. Now, you may say, so? Why in the world was God so upset with the Amalekites that he would tell Saul, Saul, go thump on the Amalekites? Well, this goes back to Exodus chapter 17. So if you go back to Exodus chapter 17, God has just brought Moses and the people out of the Egyptian bondage. And then instead of taking the most direct route to the promised land, he is taking them the southern route around the bottom side of what is now modern day Israel. So through the land of Canaan. He's taking them down around that southern route and it says in Exodus chapter 17 and verse 8, then the or then Amalek came out and fought with Israel at Rephidim. 
And this is the story where Joshua goes down the valley. Moses is up in the mountain. Joshua's down in the valley. And as long as Moses has his hands up, Joshua and the Jews are winning. And then his hands get tired and he starts to drop his hands. And Joshua and the Jews start losing. And so then pretty soon, Moses has two of his um, associates that are sitting there holding his hand up. And then pretty soon their hands start to get tired. So they get two big rocks and they set them under. So Moses sits there all day till the close, to the to the setting of the sun with his hands up like this and Joshua and the people reveal. Why did the Amalekites strike Israel? It doesn't give us. It just says that the people are making their traveling, they're leaving um, Egypt and they're headed around to the east side of what is, oh, I'm sorry, the east side of what is modern day Israel and on the way, Amalek and the people, the Amalekites attack the Jewish people. So then you get to 1 Samuel and God says, hey, because of what they did to my people, now we are going to, I'm going to exercise wrath and judgment upon them. Is Exodus 17 and 1 Samuel 15 the only place we see the Amalekites? Where else do we see them? Mark's saying no. Where else do we see them? First Samuel chapter thirty. All right, so you see them rear up again. So you have you have Saul, and he almost he, he wipes the majority of them out, but he leaves some still alive. And then after Saul is rejected, David is on the run from Saul, and he's down on the southern end of what is modern day Israel, running away from Saul. And while he's out of town, home base for him was Ziklag. Remember, so this is right there. Um, Saul's going to die in chapter thirty one. So we're almost to the point Saul's going to die and David's going to ascend to the throne. And in 1 Samuel chapter 30, while David is off fighting, who? The Amalekites. This is 1 Samuel chapter 30 in verse 1. The Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev, which is just a lower desert valley area. It's just a way of describing it. And against Ziklag, and they had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire. So while David is out of town on some military conquest, his wife and his kids and all the spouses and daughters of all the soldiers that are with him, they're back in Ziklag. And here come the Amalekites, take them all captive, and take off with them... David and his soldiers show back up and they're like, hey, well now they're mad at David because they think it's David's fault that all their women and all their children are gone. So David mounts up a response, goes back and thumps on the Amalekites, but it tells us, oh, oh, okay. So it tells us, I got to find the verse. He gets them, he whoops the Amalekites, except for there are 400 that get away. This is verse 17, 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse 17. Yeah, okay. So David struck them down from twilight until evening of the next day, and not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who mounted camels and fled. Why in the world does that matter? Well, because when he's talking about Haman the Agagite, this dude is a descendant of the Amalekites. These are the same people that, um, from what we see in Scripture, unprovoked, uh, attacked the people of Israel who was leaving Egypt. These are the same people that God had told Saul, wipe them out, and Saul didn't do it. These are the same people that came in and harassed David and uh, mistreated David. These are the same people that David then went after, but there was 400 that got away and left. So apparently Haman is the descendant of one of these 400 guys. 
Alright, so when you're reading through Esther, it helps if you can connect dots. If you can think, I know because I'm reading my Bible and I know how these all play together. So, chapter 2 ends in this great love story. Esther's the new queen. Everything's great. Esther chapter 3 opens up and now you have Haman. And Haman decides where his predecessors had failed, he will succeed. So in chapter 3 and verse 6, he says, But he, talking about Haman, disdained to lay hands on Mordecai. And there's a whole story there that I don't have time to go to. Um, So as they made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. So Haman says, you know what? Since Mordecai won't bow to me, I'm going to destroy Mordecai. But I'm not going to destroy just Mordecai. I'm going to destroy Mordecai and all his people. And I'm not just going to destroy Mordecai and all his people in this city. I'm going to destroy Mordecai and all his people in the entire kingdom under the reign of Ahasuerus. Now, at this time, you have Ahasuerus and he is the ruler of the Persian Empire. And pretty much he had encompassed all of the Jews. And so this would have virtually wiped out the most comprehensive genocide could be recorded in scripture if this plan had succeeded. So in Esther chapter 3, it was said, hey, this is what I want to do. He goes back, starts to talk to his wife, they start to cast lots, they decide upon a time this is going to happen. He goes into the king, deceives the king, gets the king to buy into the plan through a a series of deceptions. This is Esther chapter 3. The king says, fine. And then if you look down in verse 13, he sets these letters and these couriers and they go throughout all the province and the thrust of the letter is to destroy, and I'm in Esther chapter 3 and verse 13, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. So there's these decrees that go out by the couriers, which is officials, pretty much the Pony Express. This was, this was their version of email. Alright, so it went out and it just said, hey, on this day, anybody that's a Jew around you, don't just punch them. You're going to kill them, and then you're going to, you get to keep their stuff. So that was the motivation, all right? Because you may say, well, I don't want to kill Joe. He's my neighbor. Yeah, but you get Joe's stuff. Oh, Joe's not that nice anymore, all right? So that, that was the motivation. Hey, you kill them, you get their stuff. And they built in this motivation. So Haman, he plots this, uh, puts this plot in motion, puts this idea in motion. Well, Mordecai catches wind of it, and Mordecai's like, you know what? That includes me. So he's got a problem with it. And he also knows who else that includes. Esther. Esther. Because Esther's a Jew. So because the decree was made out, he knows that it's going to affect Esther. So then, as the story goes, Mordecai then goes to Esther and says, Esther, you need to do something about this. And she's like, can't. Um, can't go to the king. And Mordecai's like, no, you got to go to the king. And she says, okay. And then you can read about this. In Esther chapter 4 um, and Esther chapter 5, where finally she goes to the king and it says there <coughs> that she had him in there. The king finally said, what's the matter? She um, explained the plot that Haman had sprung and explained what was going on. You get down to Esther chapter 7 and verse 6. You have this uh, climax of the story where Esther is sitting there with the king um, at a banquet and Haman is there and she says, a foe an enemy, this wicked Haman. And then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. So she says, this guy is out to kill me. 
your wife, this guy is trying to kill. Didn't make the king happy. So then Haman is hung at the very place that he was planning on hanging Mordecai that very day. So you think, whoa, all that is there. Yes, that's why we know about Esther. Then you get to chapter 9 and they um, create a festival to commemorate this moment. Anybody know what the name of the festival is? Purim. Purim. Now, is the festival still observed today? Does anybody know when? You get a gold star if you can tell me when. March. March, April, May. Can't be all three. Alright, so on the 2024 calendar, it is going to be March the 23rd. It varies depending upon the cycles of the moon and where those those seasons come in. But if you want to celebrate Purim, March 23rd of 2024. Now people celebrate it in different ways. But if you were to go over to Jerusalem, they're a little busy right now. But if you were to go over to Jerusalem for the, obser- the observance of Purim, you will find people do different things. Some people make it a two-day celebration. So they fast the day before to commemorate when Esther and Mordecai and all the Jewish people fasted for three days and three nights so that God would give favor to Esther when she went into the king. And you can read about that in the preceding chapter. So some people observe a three-day fast, a one-day fast. But commonplace today, modern times, is that they still hold the festival. And the reason they hold the festival is because it's commemorating God delivering His people. And in a very desperate in a very um, bleak moment in the life of the Jewish people, God delivered it. And so they do several things. Um, when it comes to the festival of Purim, especially in a very Jewish, Jewish traditional Jewish household. It's good my name's mixed, my words mixed up. Alright, so in a very traditional Jewish household, they one of the things they will do is they will make these rattlers. Alright? Um, and the whole purpose of it is, is they want a loud rattler. Just, ah, just makes a bunch of noise. So what they'll do is they'll sit down, it's a tradition, they read the story of Esther. And every time they say the name Haman, the children are instructed to take those rattlers and go boo his and rattle to try to cover up the, the hearing of the word Haman. They even have these little pastries and they have a, a Hebrew name but in English our version they're called Haman ears and they're a pastry and it's a triangle with a pastry on the outside a little jelly filled on the inside and they're made triangles to depict the devilish ears that Haman must have had and so at Purim every year they have the rattles they read the story of Esther they uh, Haman ears is a delicacy and then they dress up so you think about many times in our western traditions and you have um, Halloween and people dress up for Halloween, they in the Jewish tradition will dress up for Purim. The same way that Vashti put on her nice clothes and the veil and all those things. They will say that we want to dress up and we want to uh, we want to look these parts. And so it is a big day where they put on costumes and they put on decorations to observe the festival of Purim. So some people have asked, well, why is Esther even in the book of the Bible? Because you will not find the word or the name of God in the Bible. Or not. <laughs> no, I was wrong. You will not find the name of God or the word of God in the book of Esther. She is the only book in the Bible that has not mentioned God by name. So people have said, like Martin Luther and other people have said, well, then why in the world should she be in the Bible when it's God revealed word when it doesn't talk about God? 
people say what, there's a lot of references to, the, to, to God in the book of Esther, but also it's an explanation of why the Jews observe the festival of Purim even today. Now I realize here in central Oklahoma we're like, Purim is not a big deal. But if we ever get outside of central Oklahoma, you'll find there's places on both coasts and other places throughout the United States, you'll find pockets of Jewish communities that they still observe Purim around March April, May, depending on how you want to look at it. But this year it's going to be March the 23rd of 2024. They do this to remember God's deliverance um, for the Jews from their enemies. All right, quickly. What lessons does she teach us? To be used by God. She was used by God. So she had to be willing to be used. Yes, she had to be willing to be obedient. She, She saved, her obedience saved the Jewish people. That's right. That's right. That's pretty big right there. That is big. And she, and if you go back to Arena in Esther 4, she knew that if she went into the king without being called or summoned, and she did not find favor in the king, she, she could be immediately killed in the customs and the traditions of the time. So she knew that if I go and the king isn't happy with me, I'm dead. And you go back to chapter 4, and she pretty much just says, if I die, I will die. But this is the only hope that people have. So she was willing to put her life on the line for the sake of the people around her. Because, because she could have stayed in the king's palace and they said, you're a Jew. She's like, no, I'm not. <laughs> I'm his wife. <laughs> but she chose to take a stand. Yeah, that's a good lesson. What else? I think about the sovereignty and the providence of God. If you think back to Esther chapter 2... <laughs> The two um, eunuchs that are guarding, or two bodyguards of King Ahasuerus, get mad at King, decide to kill him. And as they're talking about the plot, Mordecai overhears it. Now what are the chances that these two guys are going to decide to kill their boss, and then to talk about it in front of Mordecai in this big city, hundreds of thousands of people? And what are the chances that Mordecai is going to hear it? And what are the chances that Mordecai is going to be a guy that knows a person inside the kingdom who then can get the word to the king, hey, these guys are going to kill you? And what are the chances that all those things just coincidentally line up? God. It's the sovereignty of God. And then you think from there, then you go to chapter 6, Haman is planning, so let's just say fictitiously this is a Friday night, Haman's planning on going Saturday morning to talk to the king about hanging Mordecai, and just so happens that Friday night, the king can't sleep, says, hey, I want to read a little bit of history, and the guy who's in charge just happened to bring him the history book regarding that time when Mordecai revealed the plot against the king, and it just so happened, the king said, hey, what did we do for Mordecai? And his attendant said, we didn't do anything, and he says, oh, we need to do something, and about that time, Haman's at the door, knock, knock, And the king initiates the conversation saying, what should I do? Haman thinks he's talking about him. His chest starts to swell. And then it's all of a sudden revealed that it has nothing to do with Haman and everything to do with Mordecai. What What are the coincidental chances that the king can't sleep? He decides to read, decides to read history, asks for an attendant to bring him a piece of history, And he brings him that particular piece of history. He reads about Mordecai. 
just so happened a few hours before his second command is going to try to come and ask for the life of Mordecai. All these things, and you say, well, that's just coincidence. That's just the karma. It isn't. It's the sovereignty of God. So many times you and I start to think God can't do it. And we see example after example after example. We see the sovereignty of God and the beauty of God come on display. Don't. Don't think that God can't put things into place. Way before you even know them. Exactly where you need them. For exactly the moment they need to be there. Wish I had more time. I talked too much the way it is. Alright, I'm way past time. Appreciate your patience. Next, Sunday, next Wednesday night, Lord willing, we'll be at Ruth. Bible reading plans, if you want those, please make sure and get them. I would love for us as a faith family and us as a church family to be reading through the Bible um, collectively together over this course of this year. And I will try as time, um, as opportunity presents it to connect it, what we've been reading, to what we're studying on a Wednesday or a Sunday or even a Sunday night. So just to let you know that's going on. So thank you all so much for being here. Ron, would you be willing to close us in a word of prayer? We'll go home. Thank you for joining us today at FBC Wellston. We would love to hear from you or connect with you. If you will visit our website at fbcwellston.org, please let us know if we can serve you in any way, and we look forward to connecting with you in the future.